millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the solid gold sound of a million-dollar weekend. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then save the very best for you. Today on ReSound, we're dipping back into our archives to bring you one of our favorite past shows. Back in 2007, when this episode first aired, Third Coast curated the best radio stories, broadcasts that you could only hear on, get this, actual radios. How quaint. Needless to say, the listening landscape has changed exponentially. With podcasting, we now have an insatiable variety of storytelling styles and voices to choose from. But there was also beautiful work being made before the podcast boom. And today, we want to pay homage to the radio makers who came before in this archive edition of ReSound. Here is the Big Show Show. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. There's something about a spectacle that we can't resist. Is there anything better than a big show? I mean, a really big show. I'm talking about Las Vegas, Broadway, the Big Top, the Olympics, a five-hour opera, a two-week bike race, Saturday Night Live, the Rockettes. Today, we are getting up close and going backstage to find the show within the show. And find we do. And now... Drumroll, please. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a feat of unparalleled virtuosity, you're sure to enjoy a dazzling extravaganza beyond your wildest imagination. Resound. Manhattan has plenty of icons. The Empire State Building, the Statue of Liberty, the Broadway Marquee. But come December, there's really only one show in town, the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular, featuring fireworks, a flying Santa, an indoor snowfall, and, of course, the world-famous Rockettes. And if you're even thinking about going to see it, you got to get your tickets way in advance. And while you may be impressed with the onstage spectacular, wait till you hear what happens backstage. Producer Dean Olsher spent a day with wardrobe assistant Celeste Canfield. It has been going on for more than 70 years, drawing people from all over the country and even the world. Between November 4th and the 2nd of January, more than a million people will have walked through the doors of Radio City Music Hall into the preposterously grand Art Deco Theater that holds 5,800 people at a time to see the Rockettes and the Christmas Spectacular. Cynicism aside, Really, when you drop the attitude, you have to admit the whole thing. The rockets, the live animals, Santa flying through the air, the precision, and the showbiz that doesn't stop for 90 minutes. It is just dazzling. How do they do it? Well, let me show you. On this particular Tuesday, the first show of the day started at 11 in the morning. Preparations for that show began hours earlier. By the end of the day, all of the costumes that are put on in this room are going to end up in another place. 
And that means that by the end of the show, nearly every costume is where it doesn't belong for the next show. Okay, who took my rack? Meet Celeste Canfield, wardrobe assistant for The Christmas Spectacular. She is a veteran of the theater world. She's toured the globe with rock groups and ballets and worked in casinos. More than 30 years ago, she got her first job in the business. Great Adventure Amusement Park was opening in New Jersey, and she had to dress, along with the human performers, the horses and the camels. And she had no washing machines at her disposal. And although the Christmas spectacular is a world apart, in this one particular way, it's as if she's come full circle. The room where she dresses Rockettes is next to another that's covered in hay. He has a mind of his own. Ted, you are a real drooly camel there. When I came here 10 years ago, I came through with Diana Ross a couple of times. Mm -hmm. They offered me a Christmas show job. The same day, I got a call from Meatloaf to do eight months on tour with him. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, eight months with Meatloaf, two months of Christmas. I'm a vegetarian. I'll do Christmas. Stage right booth. Celeste lives on the Jersey Shore. It's a 75-minute drive to Midtown when there's no traffic. And when she's working at Radio City, she gets up at 5 a.m. For nine weeks out of the year, she doesn't see daylight. One reason she gets up before the sun is to avoid the traffic. But she has an ulterior motive, too. When she gets into the city, she lodges herself at the Olympic Diner on 8th Avenue with her laptop to keep her writing practice alive. Screenplays in particular. I usually get a couple of good scenes done in the morning that early. Yeah, that's before work. And with any spare moments on the job at Radio City. I have some books over here, and one is um, Carl Jung, and another one's called Inner Work, and that's about um, Jungian dream work. Please call the station and let us know you're here. Maya, 47365. And those are the announcements that happen whenever you are trying to think it. (laughs) Um, Normally I would have one of those books in my pocket, and... After I preset a costume, I will actually pull out the book, read a paragraph, and while I'm going through my next few moves, I'm actually thinking about what I just read. So you can read a book a paragraph at a time? Yeah. I mean, because that's what I'm forced to do here. (laughs) Yeah. Stage right. Yes, they are, except for the one pair that was having a zipper fixed. Okay, we'll pass the word. Bye. All right, the wooden soldier pants are going to go in now. They're in the, the call came from seven floors up. Pants for the next show were being swapped out, sent to the dry cleaners, and so Celeste restocked her racks with new pants, but also discovered in the process that she was missing a couple. She brought two pair up, but I don't see the other two pair. We're going to go downstairs okay. and find them. Hold that elevator. Now remember, Celeste is only one of the dressers. We all really depend on each other. One missing pair of shoes, if someone doesn't notice. Disaster. Disaster. Wardrobe team is made up of 28 people, which sounds like a lot. But with the size of the cast and the size of the building, you will see that everybody is employed almost at every minute. How many costume changes does a rocket go through in the course of a show? Each girl changes... Ten times, starting in her street clothes until the end of the show. So on a six-show day, that's changing your clothes top to bottom 60 times. And that's just the 36 Rockettes. Doesn't count the whole rest of the ensemble. Okay, we're missing a pair of model shoes. Just think, there are days in the season when this team puts on six shows. Today, only three, which seems like a cakewalk by comparison. Now, in a matter of moments, all hell is about to break loose. But you would never know it. This seems just too relaxed. The show starts in two minutes and you're sitting here looking at a Pottery Barn catalog? You should be frantic. <laughs> no, um, I, I always read Kafka backstage because for me, it's kind of like you're repeating the same 90 minutes of your life yeah. over and over and not really getting anywhere. And there are these quiet lulls and then there's that scream moment. Two minutes later, 11 a.m. on the dot. And it's showtime. You just take aim, you fire the bullet, and nobody can stop till it hits the target, which is nativity, the last number. And that's exactly what's about to happen over the next 90 minutes. Non-stop movement, precision coordination, all super rehearsed. And I'm not talking about the Rockettes, I'm talking about the costumers backstage. New York's favorite holiday tradition, please welcome the world-famous Radio City Rockettes! Thank you. 
All right, so here come the men. Two men in suits, one guy who's wearing street clothes. It has the frantic energy of the dressing room at Filene's basement and everyone in hot pursuit of the next bargain. Now, if this were a typical Broadway theater, everybody here would be really, really quiet, whispering. But there's something about the way this hall was built, plus the specially constructed curtains and the amplified sound from the show. It's really loud back here. Celeste says it's like being in a bar where you have to yell to be heard. Everyone, including stage manager Nicola Taylor, is speaking at full voice and sometimes even louder. So in just a second, we're going to move all the elevators up, down, bells coming in, pieces flying in and out. It's great fun. Any second. Electric's 98. For elevators one and three to meet two at four feet. Warning, flight use nine and ten. Warning for the turntable right, limit and stop. Nicola Taylor is one of four stage managers, holding her pencil like a baton and conducting like a maestro while the show's going on. Go. After all, many of the cues she gives are coordinated with the music. But given what she's responsible for, it's more apt to compare her to an air traffic controller. Go, 101. Go. Bells coming in. Warning, fly Q10. Just think for a second about those troughs that hang overhead that hold 400 pounds of snow that falls onto the stage. Go, fly 10, electrics 104. Go. It really is something else to stand in the wings at Radio City Music Hall, but I have to tell you, it is something else altogether different to be on the stage. Okay, Celeste has her teddy bear costume. We are on stage. Be careful not to step on cables. This is the cool part. That's right. At one point in the show, Celeste does a costume change behind a flat on stage while the show is going on. Checking out the shoes. You all tucked in down there. Let me see your back. Make sure the tail's sticking out. Thank me. Have a lovely dance. Next, we race back to the wings to meet up with the Rockettes, dressed now in wooden soldier costumes with tall black hats. And we're going to check and make sure they have great big white balloons on top. Perfect. You're gorgeous. Perfect. Anybody else want a feather check? Then, off stage. All right, quickly. To get the Santa costumes. Uh oh. Dropping off all the body parts that I just picked up. It's a train of costume racks pulled into the wings. One rack, two rack, three racks, four racks, five racks. This is just as precision as the Rockettes themselves. We're going too fast. Ready for the next change. Out on stage, you can see the wooden soldiers are doing their number. There's 36 of them out there doing a precision number. And as soon as they're done, they're going to come running off and do a precision change right here. It is the quickest change of the show. All the wooden soldiers become Santas in under a minute. Performance is actually the changing of the clothing. The Santas were set, so Celeste headed downstairs to the sub-basement to change the skaters. There is no elevator to the sub-basement. She must take the stairwell. It is the one thing that, over the course of the day, will break her seemingly unbreakable cheer. I really hate those stairs. Yeah. She will admit more than once today that she is getting too old for stairs. As she waits for the stage, covered in fake ice, to lower the skaters down for their costume change, this is the one moment during the show that Celeste has a chance to read. She can pull out whatever book she's got going at the time and get a paragraph in, but not for long. Okay, here they come. They're already unzipping. They can't wait to get out of them. Water, cold water. Skaters Benji and Naomi, having switched outfits from red to white, were raised back up okay, by elevator. Okay, see you next change. While Celeste went back up to her next task to finalize the reindeer costumes. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. I have all my boots. The rockets streamed in. And only minutes later, Celeste was back downstairs in the sub-basement once again. Following the rockets, we're getting ready to go on as Santa's reindeer. And these girls can never sneak up on me in these And then back up to stage level. Any chance of an elevator this time? I don't think they're coming, so we're going to walk up. All right. There is still one more scene to go, the nativity. It's where Celeste indulges the dancers a little. What is this? You've just uncovered a stash of chocolate bars. <laughs> well, we buy chocolate for the girls. It gives them that little energy lift they like to have during the day. Do they ever eat them? Oh, yeah. Really? A lot of them get into their nativity costume and get ready to go out there and worship, and they'll take a little Kit Kat with them. And with that, the end of the show. All right. Now, on Broadway, this would be it for a single night, but at Radio City, this is the first of three shows. And remember, 
for the nine-week run of the Christmas Spectacular. This team may do the same show two, three, four, five, or yes, even six times in one day. There is an hour before the second show. Just enough time to sit on the floor. Not really a chair person. <laughs> do a little mending. The lining just ripped. Eat a banana. Feeling a little peckish. Put the costumes back in place. Okay, so now we're going to go around the room. And then do the whole show over again. Change the New Yorkers. Here they are. Dress the ballerina bears. Okay, I'm laying out this costume. Check the feathers on the hats of the wooden soldiers. Hey, I check. You're fat. Roll out the Santa costumes. Yes. Somebody in the end is a little slow. Turn wooden soldiers into Santa. I'm taking the boots, opening the Velcro. Change the skaters from red to white. Zip that. Put big red spots on the cheeks of the rag dolls. That they stick on with tape. Check the reindeer's antlers and bells. Prepare for the nativity with the all-important Kit Kats. Jesus has just been born for the second time today, and it'll happen again a few hours from now, and Mary gets pretty tired. And then, after the second show... This is where I start daydreaming. Do a third. I'm going to get out of the way because the Here comes the bike. Pandas on the bikes. Go pandas. Bears on bikes. Go pandas. Get your groove on. Go pandas. Okay, everybody gets a little delirious as the day wears on. Uh Indeed. In fact, some of the dancers started to get downright punchy. Wait, I hear my audience calling. <laughs> I'm coming, darling. When the day wears on, when you're doing multiple shows, you've got to really check because it's easy to think you preset something that you did the last show. This is when the accidents can happen. Accidents can always happen. And sure enough, only a few minutes later... Well, theater people are awfully superstitious, but you have to ask, did Celeste cause an accident to happen by saying what she did? Okay, so my beard got stuck on Santa's belly. That was hilarious. What exactly happened? Salvation Army Santa beard came off of my head and was stuck on Santa's belt in the opening number. No! So he ripped it off his face. When they hugged, shut up. Nice. Can't stand around too long chatting, though. Gotta run down and change the skaters. Can it really be the third time of the day? Or is this only the second? Your mind gets addled, but pretty soon you just end up going through the motions, relying on physical memory in your muscles. There is a weird kind of deja vu quality to this. Oh, yeah. Wait till you do it five or six times. That's, that's when it becomes something else. Um, see, this would be the moment where I would sit here and pull out my book and read a paragraph as quickly as I could. And before Kafka, what was that? Um, I was rereading Moby Dick because it had been a while. But you would read it one paragraph at a time. Well, that's really all the time you get. <laughs> I don't, I don't get that. The thought of having to keep track of all this stuff and at the same time be able to immerse yourself into, you know, mid nineteenth century whaling for a paragraph blows my mind. Well, I've toured most of my life. That's kind of like being on a whale ship. They kill a whale, I put up a show. <laughs> Whatever it takes to keep you going. For some, it's great books. Others, chocolate. Oh, can I have one of those? Why do you get them hopped up on sugar at the moment when they're supposed to be chilling out? They like it. <laughs> <laughs> they need it for the high kicks. I don't judge. Don't <laughs> I just provide. This is the Christmas show, you know, and a lot of it is celebrating the hype and the fun of Christmas, and then the end, you're celebrating why it's really there. And I'm a Buddhist, but I really get into it. <laughs> I was brought up Catholic. How many sheep? Oh, yeah, the sheep. The thing I noticed about the sheep is no matter where they stand them, they always turn so their behinds are to the audience. I don't know why that is, but it happens every single time. It turns out that some particularly physically affectionate cast members, right there, shepherds on stage, can't resist giving deep tissue massages to the animals while the show is going on. So naturally, the sheep started presenting themselves for that. Why would they want to look out at the audience when they can get a massage? Is that it? I, did, I had no idea. I just knew every time I looked out there. So. And you see everybody's coming off now. The end of the show. The third of the day. A relatively moderate day as things go around here, save for the mishap with Santa's beard. It was a day backstage with the Rockettes, like any other. There are people who enjoy the limelight, and then there are people who are happiest making others look their best in the limelight. Celeste Canfield is one of those people. Good night, love. I love you too. Bye. <laughs> if she had it her way, though, there would come a time when she does make her debut on this stage. 
the idea came to her on a particularly busy day. Somewhere around the fifth or sixth show, I was thinking, I had been to a funeral and we were talking about what to do with our ashes. I thought, why not put me in the trough, the snow trough, which contains the snow, and I can snow on the Radio City stage and make my debut. And I can do it six times on a six-show day. Every time they just sweep me up and put me back, and I'll snow a little more, and you know, till there's nothing left. They'll have to remove the teeth, though, because I don't want some elf with a molar in his head. Don't get the wrong idea. Celeste isn't really serious. This is just her writer's imagination at play. But in a way, it's kind of too bad that no one would ever grant this last wish of hers, because it would be the perfect way to integrate her two lives. Backstage with the Rockettes was produced by Dean Ulsher and Emily Botine for The Next Big Thing in 2004. Coming up after the break, operas. One so big it took five hours to perform, and one so small it took only three minutes. And we'll let you in on a little secret. It was the same opera. How is that possible? Stay with us. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. On ReSound, we're always listening to podcasts, radio shows, everything we can get our ears on. And of all the stuff we hear, we share the very best with you. Today, we've done a little crate digging through our archives and found a gem from 2007. Over the last decade, the podcast explosion has given us ever more great stuff to listen to. But every once in a while, it's nice to go back and see from whence it came. The radio. From the Third Coast Archive, we bring you a show about shows. The bigger, the better. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. That's solid stuff, you know? Opera, by its very nature, is synonymous with extravaganza. The huge voices, the sweeping music, the epic storylines, the performances that last hours. The longest, in fact, is 18 hours, Wagner's Ring Cycle, which by comparison makes Wagner's Tristan und Isolde, a five-hour opera, go by in a flash. But if the scant five-hour length isn't enough to entice you, its very colorful history might. Producer Amy O'Leary brings us the Tristan Mysteries. I recently called Meg Kinney, a marketing consultant in Los Angeles, to talk about opera. Yeah, hi. Hi, how are you? Meg thinks what most people in this country probably think of opera, and she's trying really hard to be polite about it. After a while, I find myself needing something more because I just have a limited appreciation for the art form. And so... uh, So Wait, 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 I want to stop here. Do you think uh, opera is boring? No, I... But, okay, what I will say is I have given ballet many tries... And I have found ballet to not hold my interest. And I suppose, yes, I cast opera into a similar (laughs) bucket as ballet. (laughs) Between you and I, 
it, I, I get so sleepy. It, I, I get really relaxed and really sleepy. Because you always see opera scenes in movies, you know, like Pretty Woman or something. Right. You go and she loves it and she's crying. And even when I see scenes of opera depicted in film like that, I still walk away going, I don't get it. Still, she's going to give it a shot. Meg just bought her first pair of opera tickets to see Tristan Undesolde. I'm Amy O'Leary, and this is the Tristan Mysteries, our special series on the opera, which, I'm sorry to say, Meg, is nothing like that opera in Pretty Woman. It has almost no plot, no catchy solos, and it lasts nearly five hours. So, Meg Kinney, I'm telling you now, give up. I mean, if you're feeling like you're zoning out or falling asleep or are losing track of parts of the opera or are not exactly paying careful attention, you are not alone. No, lots of people fall asleep, including Danny Felsenfeld, a composer. The problem that people have with opera is they feel like if they're falling asleep, they might be a Philistine, or if they're not exactly constantly enthralled, or if they're, you know something jars them slightly awake, um, that they might be dumb because they're not able to pay attention. And I'm telling you, I fall asleep at the opera all the time, and I don't know anybody who doesn't. My name is Ben Hepner. Ben Hepner. The astonishing, terrifying, (laughs) gorgeous Ben Ben Hepner. Who's so great. Who I worship. He's an artist, not a tenor. And Ben Hepner is a star. He's one of a handful of people in the world that can physically sing the role of Tristan. His daughter's fallen asleep twice at his performances, and Ben Hepner himself, whose job title is literally heroic tenor, has a confession to make. It was Act Three, and um, uh, it wasn't the first first performance. It probably was getting towards the fourth or fifth, I would think, and I was really, really tired. And I was on the uh, this chaise on, on my you know, death pallet. But I probably fell asleep for about 30 seconds. And um, all of a sudden, I became conscious of this musical motif. And I thought, oh, my stars, I've missed my entrance. And I sat bolt upright, which is what you're not supposed to do when you're unconscious, and turned and looked at the prompt. And um, um, she was a little surprised, to say the least. But she immediately put her hand up so that I understood, you're not supposed to be singing. And then she looks me in the eye and cues me, you know, whew, that was close. So if even Ben Hepner can fall asleep during Tristan, what's going on? The wonderful thing about Wagner in general, Tristan uh, specifically, is that it is so slow that you know, the, I guess the bad version would be like watching paint dry. Mark Morris, the choreographer. But the good version would be watching a, a bud open, that it's so slow that you think nothing's happening. And of course, something's happening all the time. You're, you're changing all the time. There are parts of Tristan where you get lulled, but I think the lulling is very important. I think the hypnotic nature of what's going on is part of what draws you into the story. And the hypnotic nature of Tristan has always been a big part of the opera's mystery. When this opera was first performed, some critics uh, said that there were people who could not stop crying all night after they'd seen it. They would simply sit and cry until eventually they fell asleep. John Forrest, head of anthropology at SUNY Purchase College, says that falling asleep during the opera can make you more vulnerable to experiencing strong emotions. The process is, is one of altered states of consciousness, and that's something I think is really important about lengthy performances, is that it takes a time not only to get wrapped up into the story and in the music, but to allow the performance itself to take over your consciousness. So for example, in Java, they have uh, what's called the Wayang Kulit, which is a shadow play. This play typically lasts eight hours, and you might sleep in certain points that you don't like, and 
then you wake up at other times, you may go off and get something to eat. But the point is that because it lasts so long, you get completely wrapped into this performance. And I think that Wagner's the same way. And whether it's the length of the opera, or the music itself, or some combination of both, no one knows how Tristan can work you over more intimately than this woman. Okay, so let's just say I'm a singer. Who, because of what she's about to confess, asked that I not reveal her name. About seven years ago, I attended a concert at Carnegie Hall, and on the program was Tristan Isolde. And what I was surprised is, as the music started, um, it was like the music was going through me. I mean, everything was was vibrating, like the chair, the the hall, the instruments around me. My whole body was was filled with the music. And as it led up to a climax, like, oh my God, I'm about to have an orgasm in Carnegie Hall. Surrounded by people, what the hell is going on? I just kept my eyes closed and I was in my own little heaven right there in seat 26A, wherever it was. Why do you think this music did this to you? A lot of people understand sports and are very connected to the excitement of a sport. And at the last moment, when your team is about to score that winning field goal, and you're literally levitating out of your seat because you're so in it, I'd say that that's how music can make you feel if you open yourself to it. So, Meg Kinney, the marketing consultant who... Gets so sleepy. Don't worry so much. If you're going to Tristan und Isolde for the first time, don't expect not to fall asleep. It's perfectly fine. It's part of it. Then when you wake up, you'll feel just like the characters do. Tormented and uh, turbulent and almost satisfied. This is the Tristan Mysteries. I'm Amy O'Leary. And while the opera is partly about sex, it's also about death. And it makes sense in a way that the reactions to it have been more than just sexual. Around the opera's premiere in 1865, Tristan gained kind of a dark reputation. The first tenor to, to perform Tristan, Schnorr von Karlsfeld, a great artist, uh, died delirious days after. Previous to that, there was a failed attempt to premiere Tristan and the tenor died insane. In my own lifetime, I remember the summer that Joseph Kahlberg had a heart attack in Munich conducting Tristan Act Two. He died. <laughs> Joe Horowitz is the kind of guy who can answer a lot of questions about classical music. But when we went to Coney Island and I asked him questions about beach erosion, he wasn't very much help. I, I can't answer this question. From that picture, was it, was it built out on a pier or... It wasn't on a pier, but out into the water on a strip of land. Is there anything like that around here? I don't know. I brought Joe to the beach because somewhere out there, wherever that big strip of land was that we can't find... But here at Coney Island, there were Wagner concerts. In 1886, to be precise. About when that picture we were looking at on the front of Joe's book, Wagner Nights, was taken. It shows a strip of land that just doesn't exist anymore. A big luxury hotel and a hundred tiny figures in top hats and parasols walking towards this 3,000-seat outdoor concert hall. And it was such a weird idea, even back then. The big attractions at the beach were flashier. Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show had just come through. And John Philip Sousa was the really big musical draw on the beach. To play Wagner at Coney Island would be a little like staging a Salman Rushdie reading at spring break in Cancun. These concerts, the story gets more and more incredible, 
where the creation of the Zeidel Society, which was a women's organization based in Brooklyn. A group of 200 women in corsets who would stop at nothing to hear Wagner performed by his own protege, the dashing young conductor Anton Zeidel. Anton Zeidel was the high priest of Wagnerism in America. Zeidel was an enigma, charming, well-dressed, mysterious. One newspaper writer wrote, perhaps Herr Zeidel knows that he's adored, that hundreds of adoring eyes from hundreds of pretty faces are then bent upon him. We know that when Zeidel's funeral took place in the Metropolitan Opera, downstairs the women outnumbered the men something like 20 to 1, and they clasped hands in order to force their way into the hall when there were no more seats. We know that they applauded frantically when Tristan was premiered. We know at performances of Tristan, they stood on their chairs and screamed their delight for what seemed hours. That's a quote from the musical Courier. In the face of the initial ridicule for the beach concerts, the women of the Zeidel Society kicked into action. They raised money, sold tickets, and even organized special women-only train cars to the beach so they could come without escorts. They silenced loud talkers. They pinned the letter S on their dresses. Maybe it was just as conducting, but maybe there was something more. think about this, the more sense it makes. Their husbands are away making money. They lack professional opportunities. And they also lack, I would say, adequate bedroom opportunities. So Wagner was quite obviously a means of emotional release. And uh, it, it had an impact unimaginable today, especially for these inhibited and repressed Gilded Age housewives to be present at the orgasm, the dying orgasm of Isolde, it was just, it was a life-changing experience for them. On August 23rd, 1894, the audience demanded an encore of every single number on the program. And on most Wagner nights, the program ended with the prelude and Liebestod from Tristan and Isolde. You can't follow the Liebestod with anything else. It's, there's nowhere else to place it on a program. It just kills anything that would come after it? Yeah. It's hard to talk about Zeidel without sounding hyperbolic. But his stock and trade was the climax. No other conductor could calibrate a climax like Anton Zeidel. That was also Wagner's stock and trade. And what's his most famous climax? Well, I would say it's that orgasmic climax in the Liebestod. So... Nobody wanted to hear anything after the Liebestod conducted by Anton Zeidel. You just got up and walked out. And that's what they did for eight years, defying all boardwalk and amusement park logic, until October 12, 1896, when Zeidel's Music Hall, as they'd come to call it, was wiped out by a tidal wave. The Tristan Mysteries was produced by Amy O'Leary and Limor Tomer for WNYC. To hear the rest of the Tristan Mysteries, go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. 
Now, not everyone has five hours to sit in a theater and listen to Wagner. And for those who don't, radio producer Ed Herman has taken the first act of Tristan Untusolde and condensed it down into three minutes. Here we go. Buckle up. Here's the story. Tristan is taking Isolde aboard a ship to be married Zolda to his uncle. She sends Isolde to her and helps her maid when Zolda learns the stranger by now. When they look into each other's eyes, she thinks they both drink, then thinking they're about to die, declare their love for each other. As the ship lands, King Mark awaits his bride. Ready? Here we go. Act 1. Many hours of opera boiled down into three minutes. Tristan Untusolde, Act One, by Ed Herman, for Wake Up and Hear the Roses, a show from the early days of podcasting. In our country, one of the biggest shows around is a constitutionally mandated annual spectacle starring one of the biggest actors around, the President of the United States. Each year, the President is required to give a State of the Union address to Congress. In 2004, producer Brendan Greeley decided to do a brief analysis of the address to see what kind of sentiment got the most applause. Here is what brought down the House. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. Okay, so that doesn't really count because um, you're supposed to clap. The President of the United States. And here again, it's rude if you don't clap, so that's four minutes and 33 seconds total of introductory applause. They are making America more secure. 23 seconds of applause. The tax relief you passed is working. 22. The state of our union is confident and strong. Okay, 20. But if you don't clap when he says this, you're just a bad American. This danger will be defeated. 21. Ended the rule of Saddam Hussein and the people of Iraq are free. 23. Was found in a hole 
and now sits in a prison cell. 20. But the United States of America will never be intimidated by thugs and assassins. 20. Anand Pachachi. Sir, America stands with you and the Iraqi people as you build a free and peaceful nation. 33. And no one can now doubt the word of America. No, they can't. 20 seconds. America is proud of you, and my administration and this Congress will give you the resources you need to fight and win the war on terror. 41. And war is what they got. 23. But this is a great line. And war is what they got. And it's true. The world without Saddam Hussein's regime is a better and safer place. 25 seconds says yes. America will never seek a permission slip to defend the security of our country. 25. That's not asking too much. That was a cough. Here, listen. That's not asking too much. One cough. And the No Child Left Behind Act is opening the door of opportunity to all of America's children. 23 seconds of applause for children. For the sake of job growth, the tax cuts you passed should be permanent. 24 seconds for permanent tax cuts. Abstinence for young people is the only certain way to avoid sexually transmitted diseases. 24 seconds for abstinence. Ashley Pearson believes in you. It's my favorite line in the speech and it only got 21 seconds. Study hard in school. Listen to your mom or dad. Help someone in need. And when you and your friends see a man or woman in uniform, say thank you. 26 more seconds for Ashley. May God continue to bless America. A minute and 55 seconds for God. But that's kind of a cheap shot, because um, cause you have to mention God at the end. Everybody does it. I would have done it. What Brought Down the House, an annotated guide to the State of the Union address, was made by independent producer Brendan Greeley in 2004. A decade ago, producer Sean Cole let us in on a well-kept secret. Anyone could get a ticket to one of the longest-running, hottest shows in New York for free. But back then, that meant standing in line, sometimes for hours, sometimes for days. One man, Louis Klein, waited in line to see Saturday Night Live since the show's beginnings. In 2007, he'd seen 539 out of 622 shows, including the very first. And over the years, he became pretty famous, maybe even a little infamous, as the mayor of the Saturday Night Live ticket line. Sean Cole spent the night on the sidewalk with Saturday Night Klein. Louis Klein is 59. He has cerebral palsy and a bum knee. His wife, Jamie, who's half his age, was born without ears and uses a special headset to hear. So they don't like to sit out in the rain too much. And it's raining. But they're there anyway, about 20 feet from the neon marquee that says Rainbow Room, Observation Deck, NBC Studios. The one you see in the credits to Saturday Night Live. Louis? Oh, yes. Hey, how are you? Jamie? You You made it. Louis sits on his walker, which doubles as a stool. Jamie's got a comfy fold-out chair. They're second and third in line behind a kid named Danny, who's been there since noon. It's two o'clock now. We, we got another 17 hours to talk about it. <laughs> or something like that. Talking is kind of what Lewis does best. Jamie mostly keeps to herself, chiming in now and then with a weather report. Well, it says the last of the showers was at 9 p.m. But Lewis talks enough for the both of them, about their relationship, about his various jobs, bookkeeper, fuller brush man, but mainly about his purpose here. He's not just a veteran of the line. He's really the keeper of the line, enforcer of the line rules. Common sense rules, sort of thing. Yes, you can go get some food, you can go to the bathroom if you have to, and whatever the case may be, but you have to come back. We've had people, they, okay, I'm going to the Broadway show, I'll be back at 11 o'clock. You can't do that. That's jumping, he says, the cardinal sin of the standby line. And if you do jump the line, Lewis will tell the person who hands out the tickets in the morning not to give you one. And she won't. Because Lewis has been doing this longer than anybody. And if you sit anywhere long enough, people start listening to you. Live from New York, it's Saturday night! Lewis was always in one studio audience or other. He used to go to game shows a lot. What's my line to tell the truth? NBC Saturday night. And the night that Saturday Night Live launched, October 11th, 1975. Starring George Carlin. He attended the dress rehearsal. 
Not only that, but he finagled his way into the pre-performance the day before. And this is what I saw. A full-fledged routine, comedy routine by George Collin. Full-fledged comedy routine by Billy Crystal. Music by Janice Ian and Billy Preston. And comedy by the not ready for primetime players, including John and Gilda and everybody else. So wouldn't you want to come back? Of course you did. So I did. And he came back again and again. And more and more people came. And in 1976, the standby line was born. People waited inside back then. And the rules and hierarchies just kind of developed. It was like Lord of the Line. And Lewis remembers the day, in 1982, that the conch shell was handed to him. Uh, in fact, up until 1982, I was shy. I couldn't talk to people like this. I just couldn't. And one of, the, one of the reasons why I got out of it was because of somebody in this line asked me to watch the line for them the following week because they couldn't be here. Lou, you're here every week? Why don't you watch the line? It goes, huh? And, and it means a lot to me that I was, I'm able to give out the information that I had bottled up inside me. He'll tell people how the ticketing process works or just joke around with them. We told people one time we were nudist on strike. But he can be harsh when he feels he needs to be. Around 7.30 at night, the rain is gone and the sidewalk starts to dry. A few of the other regulars show up with sleeping bags. They're in their teens and early 20s, and Lewis says he has to keep an eye on them. He says more than once he's caught a couple of these kids celebrity trawling on the 50th Street side of the building, which is another no-no. A couple more people come while Lewis is on a scheduled bathroom break. When he gets back, he tries to sort out who arrived when. Where are you? Behind Arlene or be in front of Arlene? In front? Does she know that? Everybody here knows. Let her know. She trusts us. She trusts all of us. Otherwise, otherwise she'll think you're jumping. That's not good. I'm watching like a hawk. Just let her know. Because what is she up to now? Or what is he up to now? You see? And then the minute they do something, whack, you got it. I ask a couple of these kids what they think of Lewis. We hate him, one says. She thinks he's mean. But she likes how he keeps people from cutting in line. Still, some standby goers just wish Lewis would disappear. There have been two petitions seeking to ban him from standby, one that he told me about and one that I told him about. The one I found had no name attached, but it accused Lewis of harassing people and reporting them falsely. He says whoever created it is probably just mad because they got caught doing something wrong. He knows who wrote the other petition. And I knew exactly what was going to happen to it. It wound up in file 13. And what's file 13? The garbage can. You know what happened to the person that dotted it? She got banned. I think. Because she wouldn't leave Jimmy Fallon alone, he says. And while Lewis has met every cast member, except Lorraine Newman for some reason, he says he doesn't ever obsess over them. He just treats them like people. Friendly acquaintances who happen to be on late night TV. You got glasses? A few hours later, Bill Hader, the guy who imitates Al Pacino on the show, comes out to spend time with the kids. He might be the friendliest guy in the cast. I think my parents have a picture with them and Lewis. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I took a picture of my parents with Lewis. It's interesting because he was saying, like, he he thinks of y'all as people. And that must be really refreshing. Oh, totally, yeah. being fawned over. No, yeah, it doesn't. There's no fawning at all. At all. No fawning at all. (laughs) Yeah, he's very much like, I I, I didn't really like that last week. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) He'll say that, like, I I thought that was really bad. I I didn't like that at all. So, uh, yeah, he's a good guy, though. Uh, yes, but good, mo- uh, good evening. Hi. Uh, well, uh, we have a little broken glass on the sidewalk. Lewis by, has uh, NBC security programmed uh, into his cell phone. Lewis is mentioned on the studio tours. He's like an honorary uncle. And about 17 years ago, SNL told Lewis he could come to the show anytime he wanted. At first, they asked him to do standby anyway, just in case they didn't have a ticket for him at the desk. But then they told him and Jamie to just walk right in. Lewis doesn't have to sit out all night. He doesn't have to enforce the rules. He doesn't have to do standby. He does it because he wants to and because he feels obliged. In a way, I feel that they want me here. NBC does. Yeah. I I feel that. They don't say it because they probably can't because I'm not employed by them. This is why some of the other standby-goers feel okay about writing petitions against him. They know he's going to get into the show anyway. And he should get in, they say. But he should also get a life. What? The guy in a blue cap. 
At around midnight, Lewis rolls his walker over to one of the few regulars he depends on to help him maintain order in the line. He asks her if she knows anything about the big guy in the blue cap who's standing ten people back from the front. Yeah, they apparently said that he wasn't here. Now we got somebody in the line now that jumped the line. Lewis is going to lay down the law. Lewis approaches the guy, asks him how long he's been there. The guy says he and his girlfriend had someone hold a spot for them while they drove up from Maryland. So you replaced one with two, Lewis says? You can't do that. You can't do that. You really can't do that. Now, you have a choice right now to go to the back of the line and stay back there. One can stay here because they had a spot, okay? That's disgusting. No, it's not disgusting. It's you disgusting wouldn't mind because you I came here from Maryland. Man. I don't care whether you come yeah, you from Maryland or Hawaii. It doesn't matter. I see. I see how you do it. My stomach is so tense at this point that I think it's going to snap. But but you're but you're yeah. you're you're, you're yeah. you are switching one person for two people. But Lewis says fights like this don't bother him. He's heard it all before. Okay. Especially this part. And this is what you do every weekend. We're watching. We're watching the people don't do that. This is what you've done with your life. Congratulations, man. You see signing our lives. There you go. Later on, they come to a compromise. The girlfriend says she'll move back a few spots. At this point, I don't know what time it is. The line's a long snake, its head asleep on the sidewalk, its tail boiling with energy. Everything about me aches. I start to think that going to Saturday Night Live requires Friday night death. And Lewis is subdued, but he's still up, still talking. He tells me about a short video that the cast made for him and his wife as a wedding present. Lorne Michaels appears at the end of it and says, Lewis, Jamie, congratulations. If that's the way they feel about me, to do something like that, then hell, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to repay them for what they've done for me over the past 32 years. Do I have a life? Do I? Yes, I do. In a few hours, the woman with the tickets will come. She'll be infuriatingly clean and well-rested. Lewis won't know her, but she'll know him, and she'll ask if everybody's behaving. Lewis will say, For the most part, we're behaving here. I think we're okay. I think we're pretty good. And she'll listen to him, just like always. And then she'll hand out more than 100 tickets. And less than half of this line will actually get into the show. Saturday Night Klein was produced by Sean Cole in 2007 for Weekend America. A brief update, Lewis did eventually meet Lorraine Newman in 2011. He's no longer waiting in line every week because he's now living in Colorado, where he has to get his SNL fix the way most of us do, by watching a screen. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. This has been an archive episode from 2007, back when radio was just radio, and podcasting was mostly a promise of things to come. Every single radio show we referenced in this episode is now defunct, but they pave the way for your very favorite podcasts. Find out what all of the producers featured on the show are doing now at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. ReSound is powered by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform used by creative teams at more than 80,000 companies worldwide to manage their work their way. Learn more at Airtable.com slash thirdcoast. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. 
All diamonds, no rough. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.